0: Welcome back to the DealMakers podcast show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, bestselling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Maker show. So today we have uh, with us, you know, a very seasoned entrepreneur, you know, also an entrepreneur that uh, that has given a lot, you know, back, you know, to the ecosystem. Uh, he is very much involved with not only at the university level with the future generations, but then also in several boards. You know, he has invested in many companies, also advice, uh, plenty of others. And uh, he's had some really good success stories, you know. Uh, so without, you know, further ado, what I'd like to do is welcome our guest so that he can walk us through all the different journeys that he's had. And I'm sure that you're all going to be very much inspired with how he went about building, scaling, financing, and exiting. So without further ado, Doug Levin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for inviting me on. So born and raised in New York City. So tell us about life growing up. How was that?
1: Well, it was rough. It was, uh, you know, I uh, my my parents sent me out on the subway fairly early on and said, this is how you're going to get around. So. I've always enjoyed uh being uh a New Yorker and, and I've kept it with me, but I've lived all over the world. It was an important background. And um uh I don't know. It uh I, I have lived all over the world. I currently live in Boston.
0: Now, your parents were very much uh, big fans of uh you becoming a doctor, you know, I'm sure of academia because you have many, many degrees, you know, MIT. Uh, also, you've, you've been in many different universities across Europe as well, doing different uh, degrees as well. It sounds like economics and business was the way to go with a blend of computer science. But uh, ultimately, you decided to choose a different route, which was uh, entrepreneurship down the line. But I guess, how do you think you know that it developed for you? At what point did you know that there was like that fire in you of wanting to perhaps build something down the line?
1: Well, um I remember distinctly when I was around 10 years old I was reading the Wall Street Journal. And that was unusual for a 10-year-old and my parents uh you know they wanted me to uh to be a lawyer or a doctor. That's all they talked about. In fact, uh I come from an entire family of lawyers. And so when I started talking about going into business uh and also technology, um my parents and and the rest of my family uh found it uh just didn't understand it, didn't support me. And um but simultaneously I had a firm self-belief in not only my uh myself but also my own uh interests in this area. So I just decided I was gonna pursue it. And um my parents simultaneously said, you know, you're making a big mistake, you know, law, law is so helpful to to all of us. Look at us thriving in the family. I mean, they were they were good lawyers and they, they had interesting careers, but um, I was more interested in uh, discovering uh, what ultimately I understood as disruptive technology. So Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School wrote this classic book about uh, the innovators' uh, dilemma. And I believed it from a very early age that uh, te- technology was disruptive, and furthermore, I'm very supportive of entrepreneurs who come from various backgrounds and you know you don't have to come from a technical ba- you know you don't have to have parents who were entrepreneurs necessarily although it helps um but you should have uh, a background in various um, with various disciplines like uh math engineering um computer science and and uh, other areas to to help you in ultimately get there now
0: obviously for you once you got your degrees you went into basically the corporate world and uh, you worked with microsoft for about 10 years you know i'm sure that that was quite an amazing experience but again you know you realized that uh, perhaps there was something else for you and you branched out of that path and and you became more of a founder on the consulting side so what was that transition like and and how hard was it to to make that uh, shift
1: well, I had badge number uh, two thousand five hundred and fifty-two at at Microsoft, and when I was hired, there were a whole bunch of uh, product managers who were hired. And you know, early on, I discovered that everybody wanted to be a CEO of a company, M- mainly Microsoft, but uh, secondarily, ultimately, spin out their own companies and become uh, CEOs of independent companies and prove it outside of Microsoft. Um, Over the course of time at Microsoft, I learned a great deal about product and a great deal about um, markets and uh, large software company influences and many other things. I mean, I think my training at Microsoft was just simply excellent. And I often encourage um, people who have, uh, you know, who have MBAs, for example, to go to Microsoft as well as other companies like Google and uh, even IBM and other companies. To get their um, their professional training uh, augmented or finished by going to a company where uh, communications are challenging, and you could learn a lot about management and many many other things. For me, uh, it was very clear, even though I stayed at Microsoft for ten years during the the during the one of its greatest growth periods, that I wanted to go out and become a CEO, and also. Uh, secondarily, although you know, ultimately became primary. Um, I wanted to be the founder of a company and ultimately bring that company to a successful exit. Well, Microsoft doesn't train you exactly on that that type of entrepreneurship, that is building a company for exit, but it does give you all these types of. Uh, I was on the Excel team, for example, the original Excel team, so I learned all about Excel and how to how to market it, and so those are skills that I use today. And, um, you know, those are skills that I call on when I'm, when I'm advising startups. And those are skills that I, uh, that are part of my business analysis and business thinking. So um, I think the, I think it was very important, but what I did was I limited it to 10 years. And then from there, I went on to uh, found a starting, uh, found a consulting company, and ultimately become an executive in two other companies, and then subsequently found my own company that was Black Duck Software.
0: Yeah, because as you were alluding to, I mean, you realized that uh, you're more of an um, operator. You know, that was the uh, what the calling. You know, the accountability. Okay. You know, that you needed there, and and you went on as you were saying, you know, to become the president and CEO of uh, two companies. Uh, and uh, part of those, uh, of those of those of those same, I would say, experiences was also going through the um, acquisition or the exit of both. No one was Intermatrix. The other one was message machines. But I guess as part of those transactions, because you were the one that pushed them, what kind of visibility did that give you into the full cycle of a company?
1: Well, that is a very good question, because um, that was during the internet bubble. And uh, basically, during the internet bubble, this was 98 and 99 and 2000. Um, all you had to do, in some cases, when you had very hot technology, all you had to do was fog a mirror to prove that you're alive and you could, get it, uh, you could get your company sold. In both of these cases, we had, we had disruptive technology. And it required a narrative or a story around it in order to get the companies to acquire, uh, you know, to acquire us. We wanted to find a happy home for our engineers. Both companies were, um, mostly had MIT and Harvard uh, software engineers, and they had a particular vision about who they wanted to work for, ultimately. They wanted to exit, but they wanted to work for public companies and uh, companies that had already established their markets. And so um, we found, you know, to, in, in both of those cases, um, me in conjunction with the executive uh, staff, we found uh, two uh, very good public companies that um, we were able to integrate with. And my job in many respects was to spin that story or, or tell that narrative and ultimately ensure its integration. The company's integration into those companies, which in and of itself is a very challenging thing, because ultimately you want to be accretive to to the public company or the company that's getting uh, that that acquires you. So, in both of those cases, we were integrated. Ultimately, I think we contributed, although we, are, in both of those cases, we were not fully accretive, um, and they were uh, they were good act- they were good exits for everybody involved.
0: Now, after this, you know, basically you started to really incubate what has become, you know, one of your biggest, um, I would say, accomplishments or rocket ships that you have built as an entrepreneur. And that was Black Duck Software. Uh, At what point do you start to incubate the idea and what was that process like of really bringing it to
1: life? The answer to that question is uh, also related to the prior prior question. The two companies that I was involved with in selling those companies, there were long due diligence lists. I remember in one case, it was 10-page due diligence list. And some of the questions that were asked by the investment bankers, as well as the acquiring company, was, does the code have any open source in it? is the code proprietary has it been built by the company and written by the software engineers that the companies are acquiring or was it copied or acquired by other companies and in each one of those cases i went down to the engineering department and asked the vp of engineering and the engineers have you put any open source software into it have you have you uh used software from other companies um wh- is, is this code our code or have you, uh, you know, liberally uh, copied co- uh, code into our code base? And the answer to the question that they, uh, you know, they looked me straight in the eye and they said, yes, this is our code. We didn't use any open source co- software because at the time, this is the late 90s, uh, people knew that using open source software would be problematic for the acquirers. And so the engineers just basically said that they weren't using open source software. Now they were. They also qualified that by saying that they had uh, overwritten some of this code, but they actually had not. And so um, the truth of the matter is that uh, that idea of uh, black duck partially came from those experiences of having to rely on just. interviews with the engineers and the engineering management as opposed to really knowing what was in the code. And so, uh, you know, in December of 2002, I was sitting on a beach in Cancun, Mexico uh, with my family, and I had the idea for Black Duck that came out of my regrets of, you know, my approach to due diligence. Um I thought you know acquiring companies just could do a lot better off if they could use an administrative platform that interrogates the code and finds their code base and finds the open source code as well as non open source uh code, maybe in the form of binaries that were that was floating around the code base so source so so what an acquiring company could do is feel assured that their source code that they're acquiring doesn't have alien code in it or code uh, written by others. And uh, the, the people who are making um, assertions about the code could really say, well, you know, we have a little bit of open source code here and there, but, um, you know, ultimately it's it's our code.
0: And what was the uh the the journey to of of putting together a team around you because uh, you know it doesn't sound like uh, there were plenty of co-founders there around the table.
1: No, there weren't uh, you know I was the sole founder for many reasons. Um first of all, uh one of the reasons why uh I was a sole founder is that I had this idea and I really wanted to drive it through and there were there were a number of people who just said it's not going to work or you know, I don't think this company would, a good, you know, there were several VC who said that, that it wouldn't scale beyond 20 or 25 million. Uh, there were several VC who did not want me to use a subscription model. Um, I know their names. And I often, uh, when I, whenever I uh, run into them, I remind them of their of, of the conclusions that they came to. And their conclusions were entirely wrong. And I was convinced as an entrepreneur that I had to do it on my own. And um, to a large extent, I, um, I helped, you know, I funded the company um, and then eventually got VCs to, uh, you know, a couple of VCs to invest in the company. And, uh, uh, you know, one VC in particular, um, uh, his name is Roger Heinen, who's uh, really retired from the VC uh, profession. he he and I worked together at Microsoft and he had a vision that was very similar to mine. So he was very supportive of me as a a founder and subsequently as a CEO. And Roger Heinen is, is, to a large extent, uh, functioned as my partner um, in building Black Duck. Hey guys,
0: so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that With that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in this case, I mean, you guys, uh, as you alluded to it, you guys raised some money. So how much money did you raise prior to the acquisition?
1: Oh, around $70 give
0: or take. And, And I guess just to make sure that we get it clear, what ended up being the business model? How were you guys making money?
1: Uh, Came down to uh, a a subscription to a service that interrogated software and provided enormous value for companies that were not only in the M and A environment but also were building software uh, in in the production environment. So, in addition to that um, code scanning capability for open source and compliance, over a period of time, we built in. Uh, the ability to identify malware. And ultimately, um, the company became uh, more of a security and open source company. And uh, the technology advanced and the product line advanced as well or expanded. So the design from the beginning was to have more than one product. And ultimately, we had several. And um, the products were all functional. Uh, all in the area of software development and helping facilitate uh, the creation of code and also knowledge of the code base.
0: And I guess uh, also one thing that comes to mind is you were pushing this, you know, until the acquisition for 16 years. I mean, 16 years, you know, at a startup level, and it's unbelievable the amount of time. So what do you think kept you, you know, going for so long?
1: Well, one a maniacal uh adherence to the to the vision of Black Dock in realizing the importance of disrupting the software industry that was my original vision uh coming from Microsoft and being involved with uh licensing at Microsoft, I knew that that was an uh one model that would persist, but simultaneously, I really believed in the open source model, and furthermore, I believed in the um extending the open, you know, uh the analysis of open source and source uh source code to the area of uh finding malware and other bad acting uh software code in a in a in a code base. But what's really important so persistence was without a doubt a characteristic of mine. I'm a I'm just generally speaking a tenacious guy. Um you know if I'm playing sports, I want I play them hard. And in this case, this the sport of startups, I play hard and I play to win. But the other factors that, well, I, I have to point out that during the course of Black Duck, there was a recession in the middle of it. So that was the Obama recession from 2008 until 2011 or 12. And being persistent during that period was extremely important because during that period, people turned to... or large corporations turned to open source as a way of lowering the cost of software development and the value proposition of Black Duck increased substantially during that period as more and more enterprises used open source software. And while using open source software brought more and more malware into into enterprises. So, Black Duck's value proposition soared in the aftermath of the, uh, of the Obama recession. And you know in the years that followed, our sales increased substantially, and um, our product line also expanded substantially and took advantage of, a, of, a, of the third thing that uh, that we that I should really mention in this, which is taking advantage of the cloud. So over a period of when we first started the company, it was a, it was called asp um and asp was not what cloud became uh you know amazon was instrumental in, ex- in expanding the adoption of the cloud but it wasn't until the obama recession that people really saw the benefits of the cloud yeah. later on black Duck really took advantage of the cloud with uh the hub product and um and that's and that's a large part of the story so no single so, so to come back to your question um, no single thing you know kept me in the game it was also the uh, the change in the market and as well as the change in technology which also we took advantage of
0: so at what point does a synopsis come knocking and what was that process of uh, you know getting the company acquired like
1: well, even before uh, Synopsys started uh, knocking on our door, we also had inquiries from many other companies. In fact, when I got um, when I got uh, term sheets for Series A, I also got a uh, a, a purchase offer. Um, so simultaneously, uh, I had to weigh with Sir- Series A whether or not I want you know I wanted the company to be acquired for a small amount of money, uh, re- especially relative to the exit. Or do I did I want to get venture funded and go you know the distance and I decided that uh we were going to be um you know uh, a company with an enormous enterprise value, so I wanted to go uh the distance and um so I decided to pass on that acquisition and then over a period of time there were a number of acquisition offers, but they were small um, in comparison to the exit amounts. So they were in the you know hundreds of millions of dollars, and ultimately um you know uh you know with the support of the with uh, of our investors with the growth of our customer base um over a period of time, and also with the support of our um of all of our employees what what we were able to do in 2017 at the on, on December 27 is conclude a deal with Synopsis after, you know, multiple offers. There were no question about it. They, you know, they did uh, offer us several different, um, uh, you know, uh, exits. But uh, ultimately, we concluded an exit in December of um, 2017 that was that made both sides happy.
0: Yeah, no kidding. 572 million. Tremendous outcome. So uh, great, great exit. Now, after this, you know, like basically you have been now as the next chapter in your career, you have become an advisor, also an investor in a bunch of companies. And you were also a lecturer uh, since 2002 in institutions like MIT and most recently Harvard Business School. Now, one thing that uh, that I've come across as this, you know, piece of giving back and educating the ecosystem is a recent post that you did about your thoughts on the funding freeze. What what, what What's going on?
1: Well, this is a very good question. Um, so uh, I just came back from the Silicon Valley. And there I talked to a number of leading uh, VCs who told me straight out that uh, we are going through an adjustment process now. We're going through an adjustment process as a result of the, uh, the changes in the economy as a result of COVID, the changes in the economy as a result of high interest rates, and the impact of war in the Ukraine and now in Israel. So what's happened is that, um, and you might also add on top of that, the adjustments in the market as a result of AI. So AI has been a giant um, hype wave, but simultaneously a very important technology wave that has occurred in the um, uh, you know in the market, and so what we ended up having is a uh, you know a, a perfect storm of things which have occurred today in the um, uh, you know in the industry, and um, those things have combined to result in a funding freeze now, and part of the funding freeze is a very pragmatic point of view from uh the um from the VC and uh especially surprisingly the uh the PE companies that um that basically right now only the companies with a p to p or path to profitability and only the companies with extraordinary differentiation and um real tangible cash flow and uh, excellent teams are the teams that are going to get funded in this period. Um, you know, there are all, certainly exceptions. There are companies that are, they can they have get, gotten funded over the last couple of months. And certainly in this period, there'll be uh, others that are funded for any number of reasons. But the leading VCs and PE that I talked to last week were um, very clear that this period is a period of analysis and kind of stepping back and not making a lot of commitments. Um, this is in contrast to 2021 or 2020 especially, and 2021 where uh, VCs were making real commitments to uh, early stage companies and you know, um, doing the venture game, where they were investing in companies that could ultimately have great exits over a period of time, but required a great deal of attention and a lot of uh, investments. So, um, this is a period of, uh, let's call it retrenchment. And um, that's why you can see in the, in the short term a funding freeze.
0: Now, I've also heard you speak about the importance of corporate governance, you know, and having a board of directors that is effective, even, you know, at an early stage. Why is that the case?
1: Well, this is also a, a really interesting question because. Many of the startup founders and leaders that I've talked to today think of boards of directors as impositions or uh, a waste of time in a couple of cases, and they've said any number of things about uh, having an early board of directors. They understand the uh, importance of a board of directors at Series A, but prior to Series A, they, uh, there are many founders who shy away from boards of directors. Boards of directors, in, from my point of view, are a great source of inside knowledge and inside support. Um, this is about bringing in a group of people who are going to help the company get to where they want to uh, get to. And in many cases, with uh, VCs, they have a lot of experience with um, all kinds of finance-related, and accounting-related, and a legal-related, and uh, operational uh, type of things. When you also bring independence, uh, independent board members onto the board, you oftentimes get a uh, a group of people who can provide operational insights, which can make a huge difference for companies. And so, I'm a firm believer in the addition of uh, board mem uh, board early on, especially as you're raising you know, you're uh, the first very large seed. Seed one, maybe four hundred, five hundred thousand. 500,000. Um, then there's an MVP, which proves out the product. And and maybe there's a C2, which is two to three million or four to five million. When you start getting into the couple of millions, you really want to get board members, maybe one member, two, and two founders as, board, as the other board members um, who can really help in understanding and making decisions on a timely basis related to the company. And then subsequently, you know, expanding the board to five members. it's um, It can really help CEOs. For me, I've always felt that my board members have been really helpful. You know, there have been one or two exceptions, but um, by and large, they've been helpful in shaping my thinking, in making me a better CEO, in making me a better board member. And uh, certainly making my companies um, better in the long term.
0: So let's say I was to put you into a time machine, dog, And I bring you back in time to that moment where you were vacationing with the family there at the beach. And let's say I had, I give you the chance there of right when you were coming up with the idea and thinking about this, about, you know, Black Dog uh, software. And let's say you had the opportunity of sitting down on that uh, sunbed that was closer to where your younger self was. And you had the opportunity of, you know, approaching that younger dog and giving that younger dog one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why? Give me what you know now.
1: Well, I've been asking that, uh, that question of myself and people have been asking that for um, many years. And uh, my first response is actually not a direct answer to your question. It is, I made a lot of mistakes and um over the course of being a you know a ceo in a venture back company you know moving at, at at such high speeds traveling around the world and running a company at the same time picking a lot of employees um and that's basically the answer to the to your question um i made a lot of mistakes but i also made a huge number of great hires and my opinion is that the most important thing a CEO does is create a, a supportive culture for the company and hiring great, a great ELT, uh, executive leadership team, and uh, in turn, lots of employees who, um, who believe in the vision and, and love the culture. When you have that combination, of culture and great employees, you have a very high probability of bringing a team to a championship or a great uh, exit. And so I believe that, uh, you know, like if I there were a number of hires that uh, I made that were vanity hires, um, you know, there were a number of hires that uh, I made that were mistakes because I depended on back channel information from uh, people who just, uh, you know, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, those were some of the mistakes I made. I'm, uh, I do believe that I made many mistakes, but some of the hires that I made were just awesome. And to to this day, I'm in touch with these people and I'm just, I'm thrilled that they're part, of, they're still part of my life. Sometimes I, I put them into my companies after, uh, you, know, uh, you know, after they're free. And um, they turn out to be uh, great, um, you know, great people who uh, prove themselves over and over and over again.
0: I love it. So, Doug, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: They can uh, find me on LinkedIn and they can also email me at Doug.Levin, that's L-E-V-I-N, with the number one connected to uh, my last name, at gmail.com. But you can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh there are several Doug Levins out there. Uh, but you'll find me. I've got you'll you'll find me because uh, I've got the ugliest picture.
0: Amazing. Well hey Doug, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com